I'm Gregory Berg. The following morning show interview was recorded and initially broadcast back in 2005. I went looking for it in the morning show archives after a colleague at Carthage sent out a request for recommendations of books which give an illuminating portrait of what it is like to live in poverty. I immediately thought of this book from 2005. Some of the specifics related in the book involving welfare reform may not be completely applicable today, but the portrait of poverty is one that I will never forget. Hence uh, this rebroadcast of this interview with Jason DeParle about his book, American Dream. I have been reading a, a tremendously interesting book called American Dream, Three Women, Ten Kids, and a Nation's Drive to End Welfare. The book is written by Jason DeParle, senior writer for the New York Times, a, contribu- a frequent contributor to New York Times uh, magazine. And uh, in this book, uh, Jason DeParle seeks to uh, unravel the uh, complex story of welfare and the undoing of welfare and what that means in particular uh, in the lives of individuals. And uh, it is a story that goes untold far too often, or a story which is not told with this kind of attention uh, to detail and depth. So uh, I'm really grateful to Jason DeParle for writing this remarkable book, much of which is set just to the north of us in Milwaukee. And uh, the book is, is something which I really encourage people to seek out. It's published by Viking. And Jason DeParle, we welcome you to The Morning Show. Thank you. Tell us how you uh, began work on this book. Well, um, I, Bill Clinton signed a, a bill in 1996 that um, provided for a radical remaking of the social safety net. And I understood that the mores of journalism sometimes mean that we, we follow a story right up until the beginning. Uh, in other words, we, we follow elections, we follow legislative battles until the battle until the bill is written. But uh, we as journalists don't generally do a good job of, uh, of, 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 of following up the implementation and seeing what actually happened after the laws are, are written in Washington and, um, and get enacted in the rest of the country. So I, wanted to, I thought this was an incredibly important story about what was going to happen to our uh, most vulnerable families, and I, I wanted to stay with it. Well, and the story raises so many interesting questions. I mean, there are philosophical questions here about uh, the role of government in people's lives and what is our responsibility for those around us less fortunate. But it's also a story of nuts and bolts, of facts and figures and of real events uh, occurring to people and trying to understand those and what has made certain things happen or what has created certain problems or challenges for people. Uh, this, is, this is not easy stuff that you are attempting in this book. There, yeah, there's a lot of things going on in the book. There's a, it's mostly the story um, of three women and, and their children. The three women are Opal Caples, Angela Job, and Jewel Reed. Um, they got on the bus in Chicago in the early 1990s and, and uh, passed through Kenosha and got off in, in Milwaukee to start new lives on welfare up there, um, uh, not knowing that Milwaukee and the surrounding area would become sort of the unofficial end welfare capital of the world. So it mostly traces them in their journey, but you're right, there are other parts of the story. And I think you say it so well when you say that these three women uh, on, uh, on which you, you focus are 
inseparable at the beginning, but they are launched on differing arcs. <laughs> Yeah. And and so uh, even though these three people, as you say yourself, they they cannot possibly stand for all of the millions of people who are on welfare, but but really we we have a wider array here of experience than than one might realize at a glance. They're cousins, so it's the story of one extended family. It's an African American family. I was I was able to trace their their family history back six generations. So the book really starts in slavery, with an ancestor in slavery, and passes through emancipation and reconstruction and years of sharecropping uh, in Mississippi and then Chicago and then the move up to Milwaukee. Um, when Opal, Angie, and Jewel first moved to Milwaukee and were living together, yeah, as you say, they were they were inseparable at the start. They were all, you know, three single mothers all living on a, uh, on welfare in Milwaukee. But as time went on and they left the welfare roles, they, they, grew, they grew apart. Angie got very invested in her work became a kind of model worker, a really aspiring hard worker. Jewel fell in love and sort of, uh, she worked as well and worked hard, but um, her real emotional investment was in her boyfriend. And Opal tragically got uh, addicted to crack cocaine and had a kind of calamitous fall through the W-2 system. Hmm. We should mention briefly what drew these three women, and of course many others like them, from Chicago to Milwaukee. I mean, just yeah. the, the intractable economic reality? Well, they were on welfare in Chicago, um, but their, uh, Angie and Jewel, but their boyfriends were paying really how they paid the rent. Um, the entire welfare check in Chicago wasn't enough to cover the rent, but up in Milwaukee, 90 miles away, the arithmetic was reversed. Uh, welfare was higher and rents were lower, so you could rent an apartment and still have some money left over. Um, their boyfriends went to jail, and they no longer had a way to pay the rent, so they had never even been to Milwaukee. All, all they knew about Milwaukee is if they moved there, they could find a place to live on their own and wouldn't have to double up with relatives. You evoked the term at one point of greyhound therapy, which apparently is is a rather derisive way that, that uh, some citizens in the region would, would look at this kind yeah. of welfare migration. Yeah, it right, it wasn't my phrase, but right. um, I was just, just recalling that um, angry taxpayers <laughs> in southern Wisconsin um, you know, were upset that people were moving to Milwaukee to go on welfare and uh, referred to it as greyhound therapy. Um, you know, the, in the academic literature, the idea that people move for higher welfare benefits, uh, most academics discount the idea, and there's not a lot of evidence for it nationwide. But I think the Milwaukee-Chicago situation was unique just in the proximity of the cities and the and the difference and the disparity in the benefits and the and the and the standard of living they allowed. I mean, there, there's no doubt that Opal and Jean Jewel moved to Milwaukee because it had higher welfare benefits. And well, they would, they would be the first to say it. Yes, yes. I mean, yeah, as Opal put it, when, I, when, when she heard how much um, the, the welfare benefits were in, in uh, Wisconsin compared to Chicago, she said, Yahoo, I'm coming. Hmm. Well, and I suppose in a sense, I mean, you, you, you pose it as, in, in one way, kind of a bitter irony that they moved to Milwaukee almost at the instant that the welfare reform movement uh, begins to take shape. And yet, because, in your, in your words, there, there was this focused, unmistakable migration from Chicago to Milwaukee because of welfare, it's really not a big surprise then that, that Milwaukee becomes uh, a locale where welfare is reformed in, right. in, in, in very radical fashion. That's right. It's like uh, moving into the eye of the uh, eye of the storm, but but you know the bigger bigger surprise to me, um, 
they moved to Milwaukee precisely to go on welfare. Okay, so it seems like from that you would decide, you would you would surmise that welfare was sort of the center of center of their universe. That they were arranging their whole life around it. It was guiding them. It would be a huge deal when Milwaukee imposed these work rules and they left the welfare rules. Right? It would seem that way. But as they told their life story, it really wasn't that big a deal. I mean, they always had a number of ways to get by. They had under-the-table jobs. They got help from boyfriends. They got some money from welfare. Um, I thought the real bright dividing line in their life story was going to be the day they left welfare. But in their telling, it wasn't. It wasn't so much a new life as, you know, just a continuation of the old struggle under, under different circumstances. We're speaking with Jason DeParle. His book is called American Dream, Three Women, Ten Kids, and a Nation's Drive to End Welfare. Uh, one of the things you talk about that I would like you to explain a little more is that uh, you had kind of an epiphany as to why this whole story of welfare was of, of, of such interest to you. And it has something to do with uh, the final hours of a, of a Senate debate which you were listening to, and the way in which the participants were talking about welfare with, with an almost sort of religious zeal. Tell us why that was so uh, well, affecting right. the, to you. The policy language in which we talk about welfare is a dry technical language. We talk about block grants and entitlements and funding levels and participation rates. I mean, either there's a technical conversation like that that goes on among um, the policy experts. But I think what we're really talking about is aspirations and um, mutual responsibilities and hopes and opportunity. I mean, it's the story of uh, uh, of our country and its promise. Um, the book is called American Dream, and it, it takes its title from Bill Clinton's first welfare speech as president, in which he said, I think we all know in our heart of hearts too many of our people never get a shot at the American dream. I mean, So really the theme of this book is, have Angie, Opal, and Jewel and their families historically have a shot at? Ha, have they historically had a shot at the American dream? Um, will they now that they're off the welfare rolls? Uh, that's uh, you know it's that that's the real pull that I think the the subject of welfare has has on us. You were anxious to do a couple of things in this book. One of them is uh, you wanted to begin with a uh, clean mental slate. What kinds of, of uh, pre-assumptions did you feel like you had to really clean away? Look, m- policy conversation in Washington right now is incredibly partisan, um, bitter and divisive. And few topics are as divisive as welfare, okay? Inevitably, I had opinions about, about this subject by the time the bill passed. I've been writing about welfare and inner-city life for, for at least a decade, I thought the bill was a mistake. I thought it would. I thought poor people were going to be hurt by it. But I also thought it was a radical remaking of the social safety net. It was. A, it was. It was a new experiment. The, the country was starting anew. And the best thing I could do as a reporter was to put aside my own mental preconceptions and try to go out and report in as fair and as balanced and as thorough a way I knew how. And that's the spirit in which I undertook the book not to prove that this was a success, not to prove that it was a failure, but just to show what happened and what effect it had on families for good and for ill, because it was both. And that's, that's the spirit in which I'm hoping it'll be read. You know, if, if conservatives want to draw one set of conclusions and liberals want to draw a different set of conclusions, 
that's fine with me. I'm not trying to impose my own um, interpretation, although I have one. Um, what I'm really trying to do is provide a text, uh, a common account of what happened that both sides could, could trust and consult. Well, and our conversation reminds me of an interview I did uh, a few months ago with a former colleague of yours at the New York Times, uh, columnist Anna Quindlin, uh-huh. talking uh, in, in that particular case about how examination of any kind of issue changes profoundly when it moves from the realm of policy and becomes more of a human story of, exactly. of uh-huh. what is happening to right. people and why. I wanted to make more people care about Opal, Angie, and Jewel, care for them and root for them. Now, you can root for them and be a conservative and have one set of policy ideas in mind, and you can root for them and be a liberal and have a different set of policies in mind. I just don't want them to be ignored. You know, I want, that, I want the country to care about these people. That, that was the real hope I had for the book. Another hope you, you talk about is that you were very much hoping to challenge the assumptions that exist on both sides of the aisle. Mm-hmm. And I, I nearly re- wept with joy when I read those words. And, and by the way, I think, they're really, and I think they're lived out in the book. Well, because I really think this is one of those issues where there really truly are all kinds of assumptions made on both sides of, of the issue. Yeah, uh, it's which, so easy to put a label on and say, you know, I'm a liberal, so I believe X, Y, you know, Z, and I'm a conservative, so therefore I buy, you know, the following ten points. Yeah, I, I, I don't think the story of their lives comes prepackaged. That no, way at it's all. it's much more complicated than that. That that um, on the one hand, it is not that these are lazy, shiftless people who have have uh, created all of this mess for themselves, and yet on the other hand, you also point out very rightly that there are many situations in which much of the mess which they find themselves in is indeed self-made, that they are, at, 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 at many turns in the road, their own worst enemies. And that, that is a, a fascinating mix uh, and, and makes the story so compelling. You, you, you know, Greg, thank you for, say, for saying that. That was the, probably the single hardest thing I struggled with as a writer was to be to be frank and candid about the times in, uh, in which they, they did uh, in, engage in self-sabotage, they did you know prove their own worst enemies, but still to keep the the reader on their side the way you know I personally felt on their side. I mean, to be frank that yes, Angie got pregnant at 17 and dropped out of high school, but also to to make the reader understand what was going on in her world when she did that how the world appeared to her when she did that, why she might have done it, and, you know, to still, to still cheer for her to pull herself, pull herself up and, and, and keep, keep going. Mm. You say at one point that what, one thing that makes this a complicated story is because we're talking about the story of adversity variously overcome, compounded, or merely endured. That says it so beautifully because uh, adversity, of course, can be met in all of those different ways, and, uh, and, and, and not just one or the other or the other, but, uh, but uh, sometimes in kind of a complicated stew. Uh, but that is one thing which really, in a sense, separates uh, these women and makes each story unique. Tell us about the way in which uh, they met their adversity uh, as you followed their lives. Well, Angie... 
had an incredible resilience and endurance. Uh, she would, I would see her come home some nights at 3 o'clock in the morning and get up the next day at 5 o'clock in the morning and go back to the nursing home. Uh, she, she worked as a nursing aide uh, after she left the welfare rolls. It's incredibly hard physical work. I don't know if you or your listeners ever had the opportunity to think about that. And, you know, I, I, actually, I hadn't is why I say that. Nursing aides get injured more often than coal miners. I, mean, it's a, I was astonished when I read really? that. Really? It, it's from all the lifting. I mean, I couldn't believe it. It was true. I kept calling the Bureau of Labor Statistics every other week to double, you know, triple and quadruple check it. Um, it's from all the lifting. They're constantly lifting people, lifting patients who can't stand up. Um, you know, the nursing homes are full of back sprains. Angie would they traffic in infectious fluids, bedpans, you know, dirty. It's dirty, dangerous work. And Angie got up. No matter, no matter if her refrigerator was empty, if her electricity was cut off, if she didn't have health insurance, all those things happened to her. And every day, she was up and at the nursing home. I mean, just she had an incredible ability to persevere through that. One of the things you, Angie was. Mm-hmm. A, can, can I tell yeah, you a little, a little bit on the on the sort of reporting technique you were talking about? You know, we were talking about trying to keep the reader on the on the on their side, even, even while trying to be. Um, Frank about the you know elements of self sabotage in their story. Yes, a- Angie was a particularly hard person to report on that way because she didn't like to show her soft, sensitive side. She felt much more comfortable telling me about fights she had gotten in, um, uh, you know, her times she had uh, cheated on the welfare system, her tough side, than she did um, the fact that she wrote poetry uh, or or kept a secret journal, or she didn't want to talk about you know, her literary contemplative side. So I was asked her ten times, I think, what it was like to get pregnant in high school. And she kept saying over and over again, it wasn't a big deal, it wasn't a big deal, it wasn't a big deal. I wrote a whole chapter around that those initial accounts in which she came off as unappealing, kind of, you know, blithe. Just, it didn't match the emotional complexity that I knew she had, she, she came off as not somebody who wasn't particularly likable, honestly. You uh, say at one point, if I may say, you talk about how stubborn she was, um, but, but that her stubbornness was the stuff of many of her problems, but also the start of her solutions. Well, she was showing that stubbornness with me, in which she kept giving this account about not, about having, it, not having been a big deal in, in, to get pregnant in high school. A friend of mine read that chapter, and he said it brought out his inner Archie Bunker, <laughs> yeah, which was alarming because I didn't know he had an inner Archie Bunker, and I didn't want to be the one to bring it out. And then finally, Angie, after years into the project, she said she told me that she had kept a, a journal as a high school student, and she read me what she wrote the day she found out she was pregnant. She wrote, I have to start an, a new life. I have a new life within me. Hmm. It was such the opposite of what she had told me of it being no big deal, not something she'd even stop to think about. I mean, here she is acknowledging to herself in her most private moment what a huge life-changing event this is going to be, but she didn't want to talk about it. Right. You liken her at one point to a, a rusty tug <laughs> chugging through the water and, uh, you know, not one likely to, to stop she, uh, for philosophy. She Well, uh, 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 most people when you meet... They want to tell you they're sensitive, thoughtful, contemplative. You know, they tell you all the good parts about them, and then you sort of try to probe behind you know, the, the story. But with Angie, it was just the opposite. She was uniformly portraying herself in more negative terms because it made her feel safer and 
stronger. She she says in the book, if people think you're nice, they'll take advantage of you. She hmm. didn't want anybody to see that side of her. Interesting. Jewel is a fascinating character as well. Uh, oh, I'm glad ca- you think so. Thanks. Yeah, carrying the the uh, the boat metaphor a little further, you you'd liken her to a, a sailboat without a sail, adrift with no plan at all. Passivity offered protection. I mean, she was. Uh, going about this in, in, in a very different way from the way Angie was. Angie, when she got off welfare, was endlessly making plans. You know, she was gonna, she was gonna go, go gonna be a nurse. She was gonna get a GED. She was gonna buy a car. She was gonna buy a better car. She was gonna be a nurse in the suburb. You know, she was constantly, and then things would happen, and you know, the car would break down, and the job would get lost, and then she'd pick herself back up and make new plans. Yeah, Jules, Jewel was more. Um, uh, very much kept to herself and um, had the sense that with Jewel that the you know, plan seemed risky to her. If you were think plans were a way to set yourself up for disappointment, that her she was really taking things a day at a time. Hmm. In in the matter of of having babies at too young an age, you talk about how Jewel uh, became pregnant in high school very much on purpose, and you say like lots of girls who have a baby in high school, Jewel had gotten pregnant on purpose thinking a child would bring her something to love. You know, it's so important for us to understand that mindset in the mind of at least some young teenage mothers. That might be one way for us to help them not head down that road in, in, in a way that uh, it does nobody any good. One of the unifying conflicts, I think, in many of the stories was that none of the women grew up with their own father in the house stable. They didn't grow up knowing, you know, a, a stable, supportive father. Many of them grew up with a with a, with a stepfather or a mother's boyfriend who they didn't like, and that was the case with Jewel. Part of her desire to get pregnant was she wanted to get out of the house where she was having big conflicts with her mother's boyfriend. So she got pregnant in order to have someone in, to love, and, and actually in order to get herself evicted from the house, she wanted, she wanted to get out of that a habitat of hate, really. She wanted, she, wanted, she wanted to be pregnant and evicted. The most tragic story here, of course, is that of Opal, who uh, uh, becomes addicted to cocaine. You talk about how this W-2 uh, system, uh, at least to some extent, could, could serve someone like Angie or someone like Jewel, but uh, it, it was not nearly so successful with people like Opal, who could not be easily and effortlessly moved into the working roles? When I tell people what happened to Opal in the W-2 system, they think I'm making it up. It is so beyond our imagination. But here it goes. She had six different caseworkers at three different W-2 agencies. You know, your, your listeners will know, uh, may or may not realize that in Milwaukee they, they privatized um, the W-2 program, so uh, various private groups ran it. Opal had six caseworkers at three of the different agencies. None of them ever even figured out she was on drugs, although it was written in her old case file. All they had to do was read the file. They didn't even go as far as reading the file. For three years, they did nothing but send her checks, which she used to buy cocaine, and in the end, she lost her children. It really doesn't get to be a much sadder story than that. A a sad story and a maddening story. At one point, Opal was binging, selling off her furniture, out of food, in desperate need of help, walked into 
the Opportunities Industrialization Center on the north side of Milwaukee begging to be seen, and they told her, I'm sorry, we don't take walk-ins. Go home and make an appointment. Hmm. She'd had 10 teeth pulled one day. She was literally snapping off her teeth in food. Her teeth were rotted. The next, I took her to the dentist. She had 10 teeth pulled. The next day, she walked into a Goodwill office, and they put her on a self-directed job search, which is welfare talk for just go home and do nothing for three months, and they continued to send her a check. Um, when I asked the caseworker about her, she said, well, she seemed presentable when she came in. She looked good. And I thought, looked good? My God, she'd had 10 teeth pulled the day before. Hmm. What were they you were looking completely at? completely oblivious to her problems. Wow. The story of Opal, I think, in particular, raises a, a question I'm anxious to ask, which is, over the course of the years that you followed them, how would you characterize your relationship with them? Well, I would characterize it as just that, a relationship. So, therefore, it was complicated. Um, you know, it had, uh, and changing over time, and uh, different at different times. There were times when we were closer, there were times when we were distant, there were times we had conflicts, there were times when I was closer to one of them than to another. Um, you know, in, in other words, it was three-dimensional and real. Um, in what way did you seek to not alter their uh-huh. situation or what was yeah. going on? Yeah. Well, when I started it, you know, uh, um, inevitably I'm altering a, by, by altering the situation just by dint of being there. You know, there's no way to be there and observe it without altering it, altering it in at least some subtle ways. Yes. But I tried, I, I tried to, to minimize it as much as I could by not turning myself into a, a family social worker. I was, you know, I was... I was there to, to observe things and uh, as they would naturally happen. Now, over time, that inevitably began to erode some. You know, it's hard to sustain that for seven years, um, particularly as you come to care about people. So um, if uh, I didn't, it was a rule that I wouldn't give anybody cash money. You know, I wasn't going to, uh, we agreed upon that rule at the beginning that I wasn't paying them. But could I take the kids to a basketball game? Sure. Could I take them out for dinner? Sure. Um, at one point, uh, we, w- we took a trip together to Mississippi for a family reunion, for Angie's family reunion. Um, I got Angie a phone uh, really out of self-interested reasons, more just so, I, so it could be easier for me to call her. Huh. Um, and as time went on, you know, the, the sort of barriers to involvement um, grew less and less. And now that the book's done, I'm pleased to say they're gone altogether. So I'm sort of, sort of free to have whatever relationship uh, we, we, uh, we mutually agree upon. Tell us what their situation is now. Angie sunk her heart into her work, and sadly it didn't really pay economically. She she sort of bumped up against a low glass ceiling. You know, she at one point she got a nine cents nine cent raise to eight ninety nine an hour, and she was so indignant she stomped in the nursing home and said, "Where's my penny?" You know, she felt demeaned and insulted by like she was some kind of um, sales item at Walmart or something. She she wanted to tell herself she earned nine something an hour. She got the raise, but she didn't get the respect. And I think she feels kind of worn out by it. So she has plateaued at a near poverty level, or actually, you know, some some years just below the official poverty line, some years just above it. Um, a life of you know continuing hardship. Jewel put her heart into this man, Ken, who, when I first uh, met Jewel, was a drug dealer, and actually uh, he'd been working as a pimp and was in jail for selling drugs. I thought this was a tragic mistake, you know, like, 
of a, here's Angie putting her heart into her work and Jewel betting on a guy, uh, a sort of career drug dealer. You know who work, who you know whose story turned out better in the end? Jewel's. Um, Ken got out of prison in the spring of 2000. I drove Jewel up to the prison. We picked him up. Uh, I was thinking, boy, I better save this address. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, I'll bet we'll be back here soon. Ken had been locked up half his adult life, and he got out, <clears throat> stopped selling drugs, and really changed his life around. He's uh, he, they had a son together. He stays home w- during the day and takes care of the son while Jules at work. And at night, he works as a pizza delivery man. He's been out for four and a half years with no arrests. Um, he's uh, he's the one story of real transformation in, in the book. So. I guess Jewel knew more about what she was doing than I gave her credit for. So as you finish up a, a study, which, do I remember correctly, took seven years? Yeah, yeah. I, met, I first met Opal seven years ago, right? An extraordinary odyssey. Um, do you find yourself uh, able to unravel some of the messier questions that uh, surround this question, particularly the, the the kind of questions which set people debating endlessly about personal responsibility uh, versus compassionately helping those that, uh, that have so little versus allowing people to live by the consequences of their mistakes versus giving people uh, a would, second chance. I mean, it is, there is so much to untangle here. I was at a Jesuit university the other day giving a talk about the book, and someone asked me a similar question. I, I sort of laughed and said, that's a great Jesuit question. You know, ultimately, is there free will? or in, 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 which, to, who, to, Whose responsibility is it ultimately? Um, is there such a thing as free will? Well, here's how I think of it. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a private high school in Jacksonville, Florida. I was a financial aid student at the, at the preeminent high school in Jacksonville, Florida. Okay. When I go home to Jacksonville and see friends from high school, I might see somebody who was just a kind of average student, middle of the class, B minus, C plus student, nice person, not particularly motivated, not particularly unmotivated, you know, just floating along in the middle of the river. My friends from high school have inherited, by the accident of their birth, bank vice presidencies, nice jobs, new cars, good houses, healthy kids, trips, you know, beach club memberships. They have nice lives. They have nice lives. When I think about Opal, Angie, and Jewel, they seem to me, you know, in aggregate, sort of the same way. Not overly motivated, not under, you know, but certainly with their own talents and creativities. And by the accident of their birth, they've really inherited awful, hard, difficult lives, um, lives lives on welfare, lives in poverty, lives of running out of food in the refrigerator, um, lives where their kids don't know their fathers. Um, yeah, sure, some of us are able to overcome, you know, the circumstances of our birth through our own hard work, our own fortunes, you know, the mysteries of God's grace, but most of us don't. Most of us kind of float along there somewhere in the middle, and, and the inequities with which we started, I think that's what really emerges from, from this story, just that you know, they, they never really had the, the, the chance that most of us have at the American dream. Right. One of the things which, uh, one of the terms which gets evoked so much uh, in discussions like this is that of bootstraps, of pulling oneself up by the bootstraps when life sort of throws you a curve, mm-hmm. which is, I mean, for, for many of us, that's about as, as, as hard as it ever gets. We're, of course, in the case of these three women and their children, talking about much more serious and sort of chronic 
hardship. And uh, the idea of just pulling yourself up by the bootstraps is 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 not at all the same thing. I mean, do well, they... you know, here's what I would say about, about that. Um, Angie and Jewel, at least, right, they're now full-time steady workers. They are pulling themselves up by the bootstraps. I mean, that's the promise in, I think, their journey from welfare to work is... If they were still on welfare, the first thing somebody would say is, okay, you're on welfare. Get off welfare. Go to work. That's how you get ahead in America, right? Okay, well, now they have. Angie gets up, as I said, 5 o'clock every morning, goes to the nursing home. She's taking care of our grandmothers, our aunts, our uncles, our elderly, you know, and people. And she goes home to an empty refrigerator, to a a, a house without electricity. Um, She's now doing her part. She's now contributing in a very vital way to our society. So... Um, I think she's entitled to a shot at the American dream more promising than the one she's received. Hmm. How would you uh, alter the the landscape of welfare reform uh, if you had the power to do so? Or is that something which you have well, maybe yet to Andy, fully f- figured? Or is that something that you're you're still wrestling with to some extent? No, well, remember, Angie is not on welfare anymore, and neither is Jewel. So it's not so much altering the landscape of welfare as it is altering the landscape of low-wage work. Um, and I think there's, I mean, there's, there's a, a number of lessons which could come out of Angie's story. One is just the wages she can command are, are so low that she's never going to be able to be completely, quote, self-sufficient on her own. She needs tax credits, food stamps, subsidized health insurance, that kind of work-based safety net, those policies we have around low-wage workers, those are crucial for her. She, need, she needs at least that continuing and probably expanded support. She also, I think, needs a shot at some work-based training. Um, the only way for her to wait or raise her wage is to get some better skills. And a classroom setting just doesn't work for her. I mean, you can't just send her back to a GED class endlessly. That's not going to work. Um, but there are some other things we could do. Can, let me, can I give you one example? Yes, please. Jewel is a wonderful hairdresser, all right, a great cosmetologist, has a, a booming kitchen table business when she can find the time for it. But she can't get a job in a nursing home because she doesn't have a GED. Now, why you need a GED to cut hair, I can't begin to fathom. I, I, I've got a high school degree, and, and believe me, Greg, you don't want me cutting your hair. You know, <laughs> Jewel does not have a high school degree. She'd do a great job on your hair. There are things we could do occupationally that would enable people to utilize their capacities more fully. Ken, her boyfriend who got out of jail, let me, let me make an appeal to your listeners. He earned in jail a wonderful, uh, great grade in a bricklaying course. He got his brick masonry degree. I talked to his, his prison instructor. He made, him a, made Ken a TA. I mean, the guy is a talented bricklayer. Got out of prison, couldn't find a bricklaying job in Milwaukee, in part because of the barriers that... Uh, you know, there's a series of credentials and apprenticeship programs you can you know, so it's kind of a maze of regulation you got to get through. So there are things that we can do that that would allow them to use the, the capabilities and capacities they have. Um, and there's one other thing I think we could do, two other things. Better aftercare programs for their kids so they don't come home to dangerous environments alone while their mothers are off working. And um, there is some... some uh, embryonic fatherhood programs that are working and I think hold some promise for promoting better relationships between the kids and their and their and their absent fathers which the kids really want and need. Hmm. The book once again is called American Dream: 3 Women, 10 Kids and a Nation's Drive to End Welfare. The book is published 
by Viking. I can't urge you enough to seek out this book. It is tremendously interesting. One thing we did not touch on is the fact that in addition to the compelling stories, personal stories of these three women, uh, we also learn a great deal of history about their family and also the history of, of um, for instance, plantation life uh, in, in, in the South and, uh, and, and at other points in, in, in history in which African Americans in particular have really uh, contended with, with various challenges and, and barriers. So there's so much to be gained from reading this book. And Jason DeParle, I congratulate you on a great book, and thank you for joining us today on The Morning Show to talk about it. I'm always glad to be back in Wisconsin, even only by telephone.